Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 podcast. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. Um, actually, my voice is a little, little eh, but we should be good to go. So, yeah, you made me read some comics, and uh, I was really excited about it at first, then I actually read the comics, and now I'm kind of like eh, a little disappointed. But we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> so, thanks. I mean... I mean, isn't the story of the podcast you resenting me for a thousand slights, some real, some imagined? Yeah, pretty much. That's the whole premise, I guess. Fair, fair. So today we're talking uh, The Price of Peace, which is uh, the first four issues of the Babylon 5 uh, ongoing comic from DC, as well as the 11th, which were all collected together in a uh, trade paperback bearing that name. It's actually just the title of the fourth issue. That came out, uh, at least the first four issues came out uh, January through April uh, 1995. At least that was the cover date. Comic dates and uh, release dates are a little different. And then issue 11, Psychor uh, and You, which is also in that collection, came out in December 95. And then we're talking about an actual episode of television for DS9. That would be uh, season three, episode four, Equilibrium, which came out on the 17th of October 1994. So, short disclaimer, uh, I didn't get the homework assignment. Apparently, I was supposed to read number 11 of the uh, comic book series, but I did not. So, going to go ahead and let you know that. My bad. God damn it. That's actually <laughs> the best. That's actually the best one, too. Well, you're going to have to tell me all about it, because I read the first four issues and did not realize that I had to skip ahead all the way to number 11. It's not amazing. Yeah, yeah. For uh, anybody listening at home, I mean, it's not like absolutely necessary to read comic or anything but i just think it's kind of interesting definitely don't read issues uh five through ten though issues five through ten are really really bad i i highly recommend you do not read them and i'm gonna highly recommend don't read issues two through four (laughs) (laughs) bitter bitter but but issue number one's pretty cool and uh yeah, yeah was this collected in some kind of trade paperback or something bob did i miss out on that part yeah, yeah, there were there were actually oh. two different ones. the The first one, I think, was the first collection. I think was just called Babylon Five, and was just the first four. And then the second one, I think, was called Price of, the Price of Peace, and it was one, three, four, and eleven. Gotcha. Okay, that's where I made my mistake in not reading number eleven because I I just read them uh, online. Hint, hint, wink, wink. And- <laughs> Didn't realize that. Uh, you you mean were... you didn't pay forty dollars on Amazon for a used copy of the trade, Matt? No, Bob. I went to my local library and found a copy. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I did. Yeah. That's good, Matt. That's. I mean, it's amazing that your uh, your your uh, elementary school keeps a copy of Babylon Five: The Price of Peace yeah. for the children. But you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the first four issues. Uh, I've titled this The One Where Sinclair Kisses Delenn. Yeah, yeah, I guess he does do that, don't he? Mm-hmm. So the first issue is called In Darkness Find Me, and it came out uh, January 95. And in it, Sinclair gets recalled to Earth Dome after the events of the season one finale, where he's told by Satai Rathine, a member of the Grey Council, that uh, 
when the Minbari investigated Sinclair after capturing a ship during the Battle of the Line, they discovered that he, as well as other humans, have Minbari souls, which is why the Minbari surprisingly surrendered on the cusp of total victory in the Earth-Minbar War. And after that, uh, Sinclair is assigned uh, to be the uh, Earth ambassador on Minbar, the first time the Minbari have allowed an Earth ambassador on their homeworld. You learn a lot in this first issue, and it kind of uh, bridges that gap between uh, the season one finale and the season two premiere. I felt like the piece we were missing where what happened to Sinclair is filled in by this this issue specifically. Yeah, yeah, it's very useful in that regard. It's also sort of interesting that I think it's the only issue of this Babylon 5 comic series that's directly written by JMS. I think he had he gets like plotting or uh, story consulting credits on the other issues, but this is the only one that's like actually written by JMS where the other the other not so good issues are written by a guy who wrote a bunch of Valiant comics whose name I honestly don't remember and didn't write down. Yeah, 2, 3, and 4 were not written by JMS, uh, just the first issue. Yeah, yeah. It, it is kind of interesting that um, we get this whole scene in President Clark's office between like Sinclair and uh, Rafine. And I, I hadn't remembered this, but it's just kind of interesting to me that the Minbari did disclose this fact about uh, their souls to President Clark. It seemed like the kind of thing they wouldn't necessarily want to tell uh, Earth even even though it makes sense that it's a reason for them uh, to surrender. Uh, I also thought it was kind of cool that the Minbari like, initially blamed the soul hunters for the depletion of their souls, but they realized that the numbers don't add up, that the number of souls that the soul hunters capture doesn't really capture the number of souls that the Minbari see disappearing from what they call their soul well. Yeah, well, not only that, but it's also implied that like uh, several people in Earth government kind of already knew the reason behind the Bimari surrender from like the very start because they gave, they're the ones who gave the gray council permission to wipe Sinclair's mind. Clark claims not to have learned the secret until he took the office as president, but I'm assuming I'm, I'm thinking he knew way before that. I, I mean, I could find that plausible. It's kind of, I think it's kind of supposed to be a callback to how, like how Harry Truman didn't know about the atom bomb till he became president, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think there's like, I mean, there's not a whole lot to go on this, but there's some implication that, you know, President Santiago didn't trust President Clark all that much. Mm-hmm. So, or vi- didn't trust then Vice President Clark all that much. So, makes sense that he would withhold stuff. I'd forgotten that angle, too, about the Earth government giving the Minbari permission to wipe Sinclair's mind. That's also interesting, and it's very much a kind of like post-Vietnam, the the government betrayed our boys sort of plot line. But it, it, it's kind of interesting. It kind of ties into like the x-files feel of this issue somewhat and also i think the throwback to the soul hunters is pretty cool i'm glad they brought them back into light i'm always happy anytime they mention the soul hunters it's one of my favorites oh don't don't worry you've got a whole movie uh of of the soul hunters coming if we get that far yes yes. (laughs) um i i also really enjoyed uh there's a flashback where sinclair is being like racked on like a silver minbari triangle i thought that was actually a pretty it's a ridiculous visual image but it it, it worked. It, I don't know. It, you, you feel like he, you know, they're using him to like play a tune on the musical triangle or something, but it was really fun. Yeah, Bob, it's really cool how they torture that man on that triangle. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's Bob's favorite. Yeah. I 
Sorry, I just, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants, Matt. They didn't mention in season one that Minbari haven't killed each other for thousands of years, right? Yeah, they, they have not mentioned it yet. This is the first time it's been mentioned in like our actual viewing of the episodes. But I think I screwed up in like a previous podcast episode and kind of dropped that tidbit info early, mainly because I read it in the RPG book. So it's, yeah. it's almost like it's, it's canon outside of the actual episodes. <laughs> Yeah, I think JMS had a lot more involvement in, like, the RPG materials and such than a creator would normally have for, like, the spinoff materials. And it does, I, I, I mean, I honestly, it kind of feels like letting that slip early isn't really a spoiler, right? It's just kind of well, like... I mean, it's not, but I just, uh, for some reason, I remember mentioning it a long time ago when you said that. I was yeah. like, wait a minute, we haven't even learned that yet, and this comic is really the first time that it's, it's come to light, but even then it still hasn't come to light in an actual episode of the show. Yeah, it, and it will be a plot point for a couple of future episodes in an interesting way. So uh, the Triluminary actually makes a return, and uh, this thing can apparently bring back white memories, Bob, your favorite little object. Yeah, I'm I'm still trying to not remember what the Triluminary is. I'm just, try, I'm just trying to not care over here. It seems very important because it can put Delin and her uh, chrysalis can bring back white memories that's a pretty powerful little object i i wish somebody would use the triluminary to make me forget the triluminary matt this kind of takes me back all the way to like the tv movie where she had those really cool like anti-grav things or whatever remember that oh yeah yeah i hadn't thought about that but there is something like very comic booky about that scene in the in the gathering and it does kind of you do get a similar vibes from the minbari in uh in this uh in this comic i it's also i i would i haven't bothered to check the dates but you know it's i, I it's possible given the short the short time frame of uh you know comics turnaround that like the artists hadn't seen that much of season one and so they might have been like heavily basing a lot of their work off the pilot yeah it could be i mean that's a that's kind of a stretch, though. I don't know. Weren't Babylon 5 episodes, like, didn't they actually record them and didn't actually put them out till later? Isn't that, like... Oh, yeah, you're probably right about that. Well, and I mean, it is it is obviously bridging the season one and season two. Whether they would actually, like, bother to, like, let the artist on a tie-in comic see, like, unreleased episodes, that doesn't seem very likely. Yeah, probably not. But they didn't have the internet back then, so maybe it wasn't as big of a deal. <laughs> and the risk of leaking was uh, a lot smaller and a lot more contained. Yeah. So let's talk about these next three issues that uh, I li- I really enjoyed the first issue. Like, I really did. I was like, well, this is awesome. Like, this is just going to keep going with the, you know, what's, in, what's going on with Sinclair. It's a great story. And then we hit two, three, and four, and I'm like... Yeah. Which yeah. are sort of a continuation of one, but they're also... They also kind of make a pretty decisive break in terms of the shifting rider and the shifting focus. So it's uh, issue number two is treason. Issue number three is in harm's way. And issue number four is the uh, eponymous price of peace. And uh, Sinclair is arrested shortly after his arrival on Minbar because he's allegedly plotting a JFK style sniper assassination of the new leader of the gray council. And while this is going on, the B five staff, uh, Initially not including Sheridan just because Ivanova wants to let Sheridan sleep, but then including Sheridan are hunting for a mysterious rogue psychor terrorist who is uh, connected to the assassination plot on Minbar. Yeah, this whole assassination plot piece just, I thought it was so dumb. 
Like, I feel like it was just shoehorned in, and I didn't... It, it's what really made the story suck for me. It is a well that the show has just gone back to too many times. I mean, there was the... There was the pretty good episode about the assassination plot on uh, Santiago, and then there was the subsequent successful assassination plot. I think there have been the assassination plots on a couple of other alien leaders, and then now you're, you know, now another one. Although I, I did appreciate the more like over like JFK uh, style of the plan, which was kind of funny, kind of a nice uh, call out. But yeah, overall, it's just too many assassination plots, and it's a little, uh, it wasn't handled very well either. I mean, they're wanting, they're wanting to frame Sinclair because he is also, he's the one primarily bringing up that Santiago was assassinated and not, it wasn't just an accident. So they're wanting to get him out of the picture. I feel like that was a big piece of this plot. So you're literally like covering up an assassination with another assassination. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess you are you are going down to a less important person to assassinate. So I suppose that's uh, that's something. Did uh, you recognize the artist the artist at all in this? The guy who did uh, issues one, two, and four. He drew uh, his name is Mike Netzer, and I believe he's an Israeli. He drew a Batman Green Arrow comic, uh, the Poison Tomorrow, that I think we both read when we were kids. I did read that comic, and I'm trying to remember like what some of his art looked like. The only real comment I have to make about the art, though, is the way Garibaldi looks at issue number four, his forehead. I, what the hell was he thinking? Yeah, yeah, that that the uh, the figure work on this is not great. And I mean, in fairness, it's always hard to do tie-in comics because you want the characters to be like recognizable as the actors, but oftentimes there's like legal you know, limits on how much they can look like the actors. And also it just, you know, just drawing real people in comics is like a kind of dicey thing, artistically speaking. So I have some sympathy. It's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but yeah, the results weren't amazing. Yeah. When your option to get around it is, Oh, I don't want him to look much like the actor. So I'll just make his head really huge. Uh, that, that, that just doesn't seem like the best option. I'm looking at some, I'm actually looking through some of his artwork right now, and I do recognize a lot of it from when we were reading like Detective Comics back in the day. Oh, I, was he actually on Detective Comics? It's showing me some issue covers that, yeah, that he did, looks like. Like 655, okay. issue 655, which would have been January of 93. Well, another thing I'll say is he drew several uh, late 70s Legion of Superheroes mm -hmm. um, backup comics, and I haven't it's been a couple years since I've read them, but I remember them being pretty well drawn. There's one in particular that sticks in my memory where Monel, who's a kind of Superboy like figure in the Legion, he's like fighting like on his own, like this big Kund battleship. The Kund are like the Legion equivalent to the uh, the Klingons, mm -hmm. and I recall that being like a very well drawn, very well realized scene. Although I don't know, maybe like. Maybe our artist was just better in the 70s. I mean, he was sharing that book with um, some pretty good Legion artists, and maybe he stepped up his game. Maybe just the kind of art ticks that came in the 90s that a lot of people were following I just, you know, aren't that satisfying in hindsight. I don't know. But I, I liked his work in the late 70s on Legion a lot more than I liked it here. Yeah, I, I don't think the artwork was that great overall. I th but like you said, it may you may be correct. They just couldn't, like completely imitate what the actors look like if there were there was something written in their contracts they had or they had to pay uh royalties to them i, I don't know but it, it did look 
there was something off about it. Yeah, and then the fill-in artist for number three is Carlos Garzon. And I have uh, don't think I've ever seen his work, but apparently he mostly just did Marvel Star Wars and DC Star Trek comics. One thing I did notice about the actual writing in these issues is, like, Sinclair's use of humor did not fit his character. I, I don't remember him being so, like, trying to be funny the way he... It fit more with Garibaldi. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Did you catch on to that at all? I, I didn't, but I can kind of see it now that you're saying it. I mean, maybe that's just the burden of, like, Sinclair having to kind of carry the focus of that part of the book almost all on his own. Like, you know, not having, not having like, Garibaldi or Ivanova to bounce off of. They just decided to, like, write him, you know, to sort of, like, include, like, Garibaldi-style wisecracking just to try and make it more entertaining. And then the whole plot, uh, I kind of hinted on this earlier, but it's just so far-fetched. Like, you're telling me that the Psycor arranged for, like, a weapon and a parade route to be transported from B5 to Membor in what was, like, labeled as Sinclair's luggage. And then the Membor are just like, oh, you're going to kill our new leader. Let's put you to death. It's it's insane. Like, I don't, I don't care for it. Telepathy's a hell of a power, Matt. <laughs> It is apparently I'm not I'm never going to read this novel because I don't really care about Minbari politics at all, like at all. But there's a, a novel called I've mentioned it before called To Dream in the City of Sorrows that's apparently mostly about Sinclair's like diplomatic experience on Minbar. And it's written by JMS's ex-wife, who also wrote that really good uh, labor union episode from season one. She writes it, and apparently the assassination plot and the leader of the Grey Council from this comic are big focuses. Or not, maybe not the assassination plot itself, but the assassination plot and the fallout from it is mentioned several times in the novel. And this, uh, this new leader of the Grey Council is pretty important to that novel as well. So... I don't know. It, it, it's pretty improbable in execution, but it at least seems like something JMS wanted to like push and follow up on. And then uh, Naroon actually makes an appearance in this uh, comic. He was last seen in our Lost episode of uh, Legacies. Yeah, when the, when I used the Triluminary to uh, take away penultimate <laughs> episodes of Season 1 of Babylon 5 and Season uh, 2 of DS9. One day we'll get back to it, Bob. One day we will. I promise you. We will... We... We don't have to re-record on the uh, on the O'Brien episode. I know that one was painful for you. I I'm fine. I'm fine just doing a short one on legacies. We'll do that. That's the lost episode. We promise you guys it'll it'll be back one day. We'll, we'll have it because I know that most people want to be completionist and it it will happen. Just not right the second. Well, there's a whole separate plot. Okay, we've mainly focused on the Seclair stuff, but then there's a plot going on on Babylon Five about the Psychor. And I need you, Bob, to explain to me the Psychor plot like I'm a five-year-old. Because to me, it was like a lot of middle-aged dudes, and they all look a little just too similar. And I don't know, like, who's who, or if they're supposed to be acting as different people. It confused the hell out of me. Part of it was the art. Part of it was I just could not keep up with, like, what was going on, even though it was just a comic, but still... I uh, I have to confess that I did not read the subplot that closely this time, because I think this is my third time through the comic... But basically, there's a guy, I've already forgotten his code name. He's impersonating a Babylon 5, like what, it was a dock officer? Yes. And yeah, he, he's this legendary, uh, he's this legendary Psychor assassin that everybody has heard of. And um, name's Cypher. Cypher, thank you. He's Cypher. Badass 90s name, Cypher. Yeah, and he's being handled 
by this other guy who comes in, uh, whose name I also forget, but who's impersonating a uh, Earth Force security officer, Colonel. And uh, eventually we find out that the real Earth Force uh, Colonel is a woman, not a man. But he's being handled by this older dude and commanded to get up to all sorts of mischief on uh, the station. He's uh, mentally unstable. And then there's another guy who was a good Psychor agent who was coming to expose him. But for some reason about having his identity revealed, he had to kill everybody on the <laughs> ship he was coming in on. And then ultimately he dies, but not before Winter can scan him and, you know, get the information about uh, Cypher. Everybody get that, guys? Everybody understand now? We all clear? All right, we're good. All right. Yeah, that 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 really helped me, Bob. Thanks. Appreciate it. I, I, I want to apologize to our listeners. Had I seen this question before, I would have reread the comic to actually understand it. But I did a lot of drugs last night, and I'm very <laughs> tired. And so I, I was not going to reread these mediocre comics just to answer this question. I'm just telling you guys, it, 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 it's hard to follow. Hit us up on Twitter, and you maybe you can explain it to me. <laughs> Because I even I even read the uh, the, the Babylon Five, uh, what is the the wiki or the one of those things? Project and, Babylon. Yeah, wiki. Project Babylon, and they just give a very short synopsis because they don't even dig into it. So, it's, it, yeah, it's awful. Yeah, it, it's hard to follow. Well, and then really quickly, the eleventh issue, the final issue of the Babylon Five ongoing series, is just called the Psychor and You. And it's an amusing little one-off that's kind of told in like propaganda film style where like the Psychor female narrator is like talking up how great the Psychor is. And she also gives a little backstory on like the role of a telepath in the battle of the line. And she gives a little background on to Alfred Bester's childhood. And it's, it's honestly, it's worth looking at. Like I would say it and number one are really the only issues you absolutely have to look at. But, um, you know, it's fun. You're not really supposed to take it as canon necessarily because it's propaganda from the Psychor, so you know, you can't you can't assume that what you're being told is reliable, but it's it's a nice little portrait of like the sort of dystopian sort of misinformation of the Psychor. At the end of these comics, we realize that the Psychor doesn't seem like they don't seem like the good guys. They seem like the bad guys. I, mean, I think that's a a very astute deduction, Matt. I have no idea uh, how you got there. I don't think most of our listeners will get there, but it's it's brilliant. Okay, just making sure. So, Psychor are definitely the bad guys at this point, and they're doing some some really shady stuff. If only this were a video podcast, and people could see me giving Matt the prisoner salute uh, through <laughs> through the computer. All right, so so we're good there. Uh, so let's talk DS Nine, Bob. Yeah, yeah. Do you wanna you wanna give us your friend's nickname for this one, Matt? Yeah, this is called the one where we see the Trill Homeworld. We finally get a chance to see where the Trill come from. Yeah, so this is uh, season three, episode four, Equilibrium, and in the A plot, we have Dax suffering from inexplicable mood swings and hallucinations. So Cisco and Bashir take her to the Trill Homeworld for medical treatment. And in the B plot, Ben and Jake host much of the senior staff for a New Orleans style dinner giving Odo the chance to look cute to Kira as he whisks Cisco's souffle, which sounds a lot more body than uh, it actually is. Yeah, thanks, thanks, though. That's, that's, that was interesting sounding, as he whisks Cisco's souffle. This episode, 
had a weird setup at the, even at the beginning because we don't know what's going on with Dax and she gets like real angry real fast after she can't like she it starts off she's playing this musical instrument thing it almost looks like a uh, it reminded me of like a little kid's like infant keyboard type thing <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but like there's like, like the... four there's four buttons and you hit it and it makes noise <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's not not the most sophisticated of instruments. But anyway, she's playing the song, and she doesn't recognize it, so you're like, okay, that's kind of weird, but then she just won't stop playing the song, and it goes on and on and on, and then she's playing chess with Cisco, and she keeps humming the song, and Cisco's getting annoyed by it, and then Dax decides that uh, she's so focused on the song that she makes a misstep in her in, in playing chess and says that Cisco's cheating. She takes the whole chessboard, just throws it on the ground and like storms off mad. And then Kira tries to confront her about it later on, you know, just to talk to her about what happened. And Dax kind of gets pissed at her as well. It, it, it's, it's really weird how Dax is portrayed in this episode. And then when you do find out, you know, that she has this other persona within her, but I really like the way that Terry Farrell was able to like be almost a completely different character and you could catch on so eat so quickly like that this isn't the normal Dax we're used to this is something's going on with her that's just way off yeah yeah i think it's one of the first episodes where they've really given this and blood out there seems like the first ones where they've really given terry farrell like the chance to like really act like if we contrast it with the earlier dax focused episodes like dax from season one and then the one whose name i can never remember from season two with uh john glover the riddler uh, stealing the symbiote from her right. in both of those she's like very passive very non-responsive but here she gets to you know like you say inhabit different uh personas be pretty vivacious it's it's pretty fun yeah i did enjoy that ha- creepy hallucination scene where like she sees this figure who like removes the mask just to have another mask and that that annoying song that she's been playing repeatedly is like playing over it, which gives it a kind of X-Files vibe. And I think yeah, the scene itself, for whatever reason, kind of in the mind of Twin Peaks. But yeah, it was, it was a neat little scene. Yeah, the, the, when the dude is taking off the masks, it's only reveal like other masks he's doing on magician style. That was really creepy and weird. And when I first saw that, I I sort of think, Bob, I like I feel like this is one of those episodes we would have skipped. You know, because it, it was just freaking weird. Like, I, I didn't... But then, as the story went on, I was like, okay, this makes more sense. I just thought we had some weird like dude on the on Deep Space Nine just being a creep, <laughs> not like this internal Dax plot. So. Oh, okay. You did so you didn't really remember the plot of this one? Not really. No, this is one I didn't remember very well. There were some there were some things about it I didn't remember, but the it being like a you know a buried personality of a forgotten host was like that that stuck with me pretty clearly. Yeah, and that fits in really nicely with, like, a missed opportunity from Season 2. Like, you remember when I was talking about how, the, like you said, the, the Riddler from Batman the Animated Series, he could have, like, impacted Jadzia with his memories after being, after taking on the uh, the symbiote and then giving it back to her? I almost feel like that's yeah. what they did. Yeah, although, in a way, like, I, I do like what they do with this forgotten host, and they occasionally come back to him. I like that a lot more than... I, even though I like that episode with John Glover, I just feel like the, they kind of used this more than maybe they could have used John Glover because John Glover wasn't like wasn't such a inter, like he was a, it was a good performance, but the character wasn't that interesting if that makes sense. Right. And it was yeah, and I think I mainly wanted like her to show traces of him. 
I thought that would have been a more satisfying like loop of that particular episode. Mm-hmm. I, I think is what I was thinking more so than oh, I, I really want to see uh, the John Glover character you know manifest in Dax like once a season. You know, and the end plot reason for it too though is like for six months the symbiote was in this uh, in this character before it was in uh, Curzon Dax, so. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes more sense that the symbiote spent six months with him as opposed to just the you know couple yeah, hours. Six hours or whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah. At the end of the episode, we get this big reveal that the whole Trill joining process kind of seems like the opposite of what we originally thought when we were comparing it to the college admission scandal. It's almost like they're covering it up in a different way. <laughs> oh, I, 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 sort of, I sort of disagree. I mean, I, I, I also think uh, people are cheating in order to... Uh, get a degree that's ultimately meaningless. So in that way, yeah. like, you know, it's like, it's, it, it's both like, in t- it's intense competition for like an arbitrary and ultimately meaningless distinction. I think in that way, it's still, it's the same. Yeah. But is the symbiote really meaningless though? I mean, aren't you getting all the memories and the skills and things that the, the symbiote is not meaningless, but the feeling of status people, people feel for being joined with a symbiote is meaningless. If that makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, but still, I think I think it's way better. I would much rather have a symbiote than a college degree, wouldn't you? Oh yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I also like. I mean, I still just don't understand like randomly assigned symbiotes by lot. Uh, you know, and thoroughly vet people to make sure the people who you're drawing from want it and are medically compatible with it. Why do you have to create the illusion of meritocracy? I just don't get it. I mean, had Renhold not made that argument for symbiotes going to like the highest bidder being the issue. I probably would have been all for like Cisco releasing that info at that time and letting it wreak havoc on the trail. Oh, I, I, I still am. I still am. I don't, I don't think, I think it's at least a plausible reason. And this is kind of us going into econ watch is that like Dr. Rinhole, you know, is saying that, Oh, well we have to, we have to lie and pretend that only a few trill can join with symbiotes or else there would be like an awful bidding war on them. It's at least a plausible reason, but I don't, I don't think it's at all convincing. And I think Cisco like, taking the deal to keep quiet about what the trill are up to is honestly like pretty morally indefensible. Yeah. All right. So you'd actually watched a, an, an episode of discovery. Yeah. So I rewatched uh, disco season three, episode four, which we've alluded to a lot in our coverage of the trill in DS nine in that John Glover episode and in the Dax episode from season one but we haven't really talked about specifically. So it's called Forget Me Not. And Disco visits the Trill homeworld in the 32nd century. And they're trying to help um, Adira, uh, who's a human, reintegrate with their symbiote. Their symbiote was prior uh, joined uh, to an admiral in Starfleet named Senatol, who knows like where the kind of current Federation hideout is because in the 32nd century, like the Federation is greatly retrenched. And there's a lot of continuity uh, with this episode, Equilibrium. Like the disco episode, Forget Me Not, names the pools as being in the caves of the Makala. Kind of like this episode, it also uses um, newly joined host to the symbiote like remembering the musical ability of prior trills or the musical knowledge of prior trills it's like a major plot point however there is some like interesting stuff that's not really in this episode like in the disco episode the trills who 
mostly like wear these weird robes. They carry around shock sticks. Uh, there's flying fish on the Trill homeworld. So there's a lot of new stuff. And there's also one thing that feels like maybe a little inconsistent with this episode because in the disco episode, they say the burn, which was this great disaster that retrenched uh, the Federation and Starfleet uh, several decades before Discovery travels into the 32nd century. They say the burn killed most of the trills available for joining with the symbiotes. But given that Equilibrium, you know, estimates that about half of trills could accept a symbiote, that kind of implies that like the trills as a species were very nearly wiped out or at least severely depleted in the burn, which doesn't really seem that plausible with what we later learn about the burn. So I don't know. It's it, it's still it's it's a very interesting episode though and worth watching. Well, Bob, I'm really glad that you watched this episode at my request. I, I didn't. But what you said sounds about right with my memory, and I didn't want to let our listeners down, so thank you. Oh, well, you're, you're very welcome, Matt. One other point I wanted to make that makes this kind of a, a, significant, a significant episode is that it's the first episode where the fact that Ben and Jake are from New Orleans is brought up. And I assumed it couldn't be. I assumed that that must have come up somewhere in the first two seasons, but I was perusing Memory Alpha looking for something else, and Memory Alpha does indeed confirm that this is the first issue, uh, the first episode where we find out that the Cisco's are uh, from New Orleans. It's also kind of funny because um, Cisco is cooking beets, and uh, much to the skepticism of some of his uh, of some of his diners, and that reminds me of a really great weird comic uh, called Chew. And in that comic, beats are pretty prominently featured. And interestingly, the artist of that is also a black man from Louisiana, this time uh, from Lafayette. I'm like so surprised that they did not mention that they're from Louisiana before this. Yeah, I, I, you would think it would have come up. I mean, because they do emphasize that Cisco likes to cook before this episode. Right. I almost like want to go back and be like, well, what, what did they portray him as cooking? Was it like New Orleans style food or was it something else? It's really weird. Like I, I, that surprised me. I feel like a lot of the things we've, we, as we've been going back and watching these, like this, and with even with Babylon Five and some of the stuff you've mentioned, like you don't realize you're not even exposed to a lot of this till way down the road. Yeah, yeah. And then it, you just kind of retroactively think of it as having always been the case. Yeah. All right. So you did already mention some stuff at Econ Watch, but one thing I did want to touch base on with that is, okay, let's say that Cisco did decide that he wanted to release all this info he's learned. How exactly would he convey that message to the Trill, and would they actually listen? Uh, I think they would. I mean, it's obviously the the symbiotes are a source of great desirability among the Trill people, and so they would be interested. And I mean, Cisco has a lot of credibility. Probably just make a broadcast to the homeworld, and you know, maybe attach uh, some of Bashir's medical files on Jadzia to it. Gotcha. That makes sense. I was just curious because every time we, every time I'm thinking about that, that kind of stuff, I'm like. But I think of like how it is in the United States when you have like people of really like high power and they say stuff, but then half the people really don't even listen to them. Like they don't care. <laughs> and then the other half are like verbatim believing every word that comes out of their mouth. Like it's almost, it's very political. I just wonder if the same thing would happen in Star Trek. I, I don't think so because I think, yeah, I think a lot of political partisanship comes from people's like felt sense of insecurity about like their economic position and like, you know, like different policies that the government are going to pursue or not pursue. And so I think that if you live in, you know, what's a basically a post-scarcity society where because of, 
you know, both uh, more equitable economic distribution that, you know, we might call socialism and also like abundant energy and materials from the replicator, that would probably take a lot of the bite out of politics. I mean, you know, also like a lot of American distrust is bred from the fact that our government has actively lied to us, you know, since uh, the cold, the start of the Cold War about a lot of things. You know, there's the deceptions about WMD in Iraq. There's the deception about the Gulf of Tonkin incident in Vietnam. There's the, the deceptions about the extent of our domestic surveillance program um, in the war on terror and, you know, so many other things. And so I, I think like the American people's like partisan distrust of what authority figures say is very rational, but wouldn't necessarily apply uh, to the Federation. One thing that the, the Discovery episode Forget Me Not does that I think actually is good is that it kind of rectifies the moral shadiness of Cisco's deal with Dr. Renhall because it reveals that symbiotes can not only join with um, most Trill, or at least about half of Trill, they also can join with people of other species, at least in some cases. And so the Discovery character, Adira Tall, you know, once she's integrated with her symbiote, kind of becomes the human messenger of this. And you get the kind of, you get the sort of sense that Trill society is going to have to reform a lot in response to this revelation. And you also get the sense that, like, this will be the path forward for the for the Trill symbiotes to survive is to join not just with Trill, but to join with uh, other other humanoid or maybe even non-humanoid species. Now we're moving on to the Thirst Watch. There's a lot of thirst going on this week, Bob. We've got Kira pointing out how cute Odo is, which you, you mentioned earlier. That's that's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Is that even that thirsty? It's I pretty mean, thirsty, Bob. Kira's thirsty for know. Odo in a way he just. It does seem like. It does seem like the first time Kira, like, potentially recognizing that she's attracted to Odo, but I don't know that I would call it thirsty. She thirsty. I don't... Thirsty to me implies a level of, like, concentrated lust that I don't think was in that scene. It was a cute scene. It wasn't a thirst scene. She thirsty. All right. Actually not thirsty. Dax spending the night in Bashir's room on the Defiant. That's also... No, that... You're just completely misreading the situation. (laughs) So... This is this is a very good episode for Bashir because it's Bashir finally getting his thirst under control and letting Dax have his bottom bunk and being very normal and very cool again. about it. Letting Dax have his bottom bunk and being very normal and very cool about it. Like this is this is growth for Bashir. Bashir is not thirsty in this episode. He's containing the thirst. Yeah, but there was some He's, thirst there. That could have got. You have to admit, when that scene first happened, you were thinking, "Hold on a minute, something weird's going to happen here." No, I wasn't because I Dax was. has been Dax has been consistently uninterested in Bashir, and Bashir is growing finally. But she's getting she, another personality's coming out of her. So, oh no, that, that's just getting creepy. That's just <laughs> getting creepy. Don't even go there. That's just creepy. All right. Anyway, now looking at B five in these comics. Garibaldi's elevator creepiness actually pays off because who does he rescue when the elevator opens? Uh, Winters. He rescues Winters. Winters was waiting on the elevator. The dude came up behind her with his gun. He was holding her hostage. Elevator doors open. Who always shows up when the elevator doors open for Winters? It's Garibaldi. Garibaldi to the rescue. 
I commend you for noticing that because honestly, I was reading so quickly I didn't pay attention to that. So, wait, wait, wait to notice the callback to how Garibaldi just stalks the elevators of Babylon Five, waiting for Winters to enter. And then you've got Sinclair kissing Delenn at the end, which we even get that O oh, from Delenn. I think you could make an argument that it's not that thirsty of a kiss. It's you know just kind of like isn't it on the cheek? But I can't honestly. The... I can't tell because the art was so shitty, Bob. <laughs> burn, burn. <laughs> I looked at it, but I looked at it for a while, and I'm like, I don't even know if he's kissing her like above her lip, if he's kissing her on the nose. I couldn't even tell. So but that being said, I I think I shot down the idea of sexual tension between Delenn and Sinclair uh, in a prior episode, and uh, I guess they were thinking that. I guess they were planning on going there. Yep, they were. So my bad. But my this bad. was I'll, I'll I'll give I'll give you this though, Bob. This was issue four, and it wasn't the one written by JMS. So maybe it just yeah, but it. It's from like plot outlines or plot ideas by JMS, and then, you know, like like we were saying, other events are followed up on in other things that JMS considers very canon. So, okay, so that was it for our thirst watch. So, character of the week. My character of the week, Bob, is Dax. We finally have a decent troll episode. Terry Farrell does an excellent job going back and forth between the different personas. Really like Dax in this episode. Yeah, I'd definitely give it to Dax. It kind of surprises me that it's taken us this many episodes to give an episode to Dax. I kind of thought it would be uh, Blood Oath, but man, I just love Koloth so much I had to give it to Koloth and Blood Oath. So yeah, very good episode for Dax. All right, story of the week. Definitely going to Equilibrium. Yep. I didn't dig the comic as much. You nope. know, After a strong first issue, it just went downhill from there. Yep. Uh, much like the whole run, according to you, the whole run of the comic series. Yeah, if anybody's curious, uh, issues five through eight are like the backstory of how Sinclair met Garibaldi, and it involves a shadow ship. It's really not good. You, you shouldn't read it. And then episode nine and ten, I think it is like a two-parter called like Lasers, Mirror, and Starweb. And it is really, really bad and nonsensical. It has no connection to the Babylon 5 canon, and it was never even reprinted. You should definitely, you should not read uh, issues 5 through 10, but you should definitely not read issues 9 through 10. So what was your uh, story of the week, Bob? Oh, Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Yeah, no question. All right. So what are we looking at next week? Uh, next week, we've got Season 2, Episode 3 of Babylon 5, Geometry of Shadows, and then we've got Season 3, Episode 5 of DS9, Second Skin. Honestly, I don't remember the plot of either. Uh, Geometry of Shadows is actually where uh, Ivanova becomes a commander. A commander traitor. She does become a commander, even though the comic book kind of ruined this for us. Thanks, comic book. Remember all the arguments I had with Season 2, Episode 3 and you? Yes, about yes. how you shouldn't watch episode three. Well, that's one of the reasons why. Thanks. Thanks, Tommy Book, for ruining that for me. And season three, episode five, Second Skin, is actually where we think Kira is a Cardassian. Oh, that is a fun <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah, that is a fun one. Okay. So, so that's what we'll be looking at next week. Well, into, until then, Matt, I've got your second skin right here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's... 
that's why it's supposed to sound threatening or threatened or what i, I don't know yeah anything. that's why that's why it's supposed to sound threatening it's uh, so elliptical this has been the uh, babylon 5 versus ds9 podcast i am bob second skin from cascadia i've got matt from the southland on the line have a good night everybody thanks for listening